jazz. <laughs> okay. Welcome to Jazz Bastard Podcast 246. Straight out of Blighty, it's Mike. Roy, today... No, I'm not going to do that. Yeah, please, God, no. <laughs> um, today I'm putting on my Dick Van Dyke Cockney accent. No, I won't do that. That would be terrible. And uh, it's me, Mike, and it's him. What's your name again? It's Pat. I'm straight uh, out of uh, Indiana. Straight out of Compton. No, wait. Straight out of straight out of Crawfordsville. That's yeah. right. Well-known rap albums and artists all from Crawfordsville, Indiana. It's true. At least in my dreams. And uh, today we're just going to do a uh, look at a particular artist. We're going to talk about some albums by Lee Morgan, the great trumpet player. Many, many moons ago, we talked in some depth about Freddie Hubbard. And thought, well, let's give Lee a chance here. Unlike Freddie, Lee was exclusively on the, pretty much, that's not true, but mostly on the Blue Note label. And unlike Freddie, he was shot by his girlfriend, rather young, at age 33. So Lee's career was truncated, but he was one of the major trumpet voices of his generation. And we did Freddie back on episode... I, I don't know. Yep, episode 95 is when we talked about Freddie. So we just, I think I picked out some records, basically one from before his hiatus and three after. The, the records are all on Blue Note, The Cooker from 1958, The Sidewinder, of course, we had to do The Sidewinder from 1964, The Procrastinator, and you'll notice a pattern in the titling of most Lee Morgan albums. There's a definitive article. Procrastinator was recorded in 1967, but not released till 1978. And finally, Lee Morgan, otherwise known as The Last Session, a double LP that was released in 1971. And Lee's years, he was born in 38 and died in 1972. I don't know if I assume like me, you've kind of listened to Lee off and on the last couple of decades. Do you have any opening thoughts about Mr. Morgan? Yeah, a few. I mean, uh, maybe the first thing to say about him is along with there's a handful of artists that I think of as paradigmatic, classic blue note artists from a certain era. You know, there are just certain guys who are like they're like right in that pocket. Lee Morgan, like who would you put on that list, right? Lee Morgan certainly is on the list. Hank Mobley, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, he's another one, um, yeah. Just Absolutely. right in the pocket, classic Blue Note, just one fucking four-star album after another. Like, and, and every now and again, these guys will, like, bust out a classic, you know, just killer. But these he's are just Blakey all... to some degree. I mean, yep, so, some of these Blakey. artists, Blakey, I mean, Morgan and Mobley, both really are their careers are kind of defined by Blue Note. They're on there a yep. very long time. They make a lot of recordings on it, and then really, once the relationship with the label ends, their career kind of ends. Whereas like a Wayne Shorter, lots right. of major statements on Blue Note. Some people's favorite recordings by Wayne on there, but he goes on to be in Weather Report and have his own group now. And you know, but yeah, these guys they kind of are defined. And Art Blakey goes on, of course, and records after his Blue Note relationship. But I think everybody would put. Art's Blue Note stuff at the very heart of what he did. 
Yep. I don't know that anyone says his career after that was as important or influential. So. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a good distinction, right? Because there are a lot of guys who had great Blue Note careers, but then also kind of went on to do other work. Maybe someone who sort of fits in that Mobley Morgan bag to some degree would be Horace Silver as well, right? Yeah, yeah, great, yeah, great example, right? Somebody absolutely who did, you know, lots of Blue Note stuff, yeah. And just iconic albums, you know, and then he continued to record, and it's not like the stuff afterwards sucks. It's just, you know, it's there's a, somewhat of a falling off at some level, you know, um, minor, but still, you know. So these are guys, you know, I think of Lee Morgan as he's just like right in the pocket in the sort of golden age of like those Blue Note albums. And, you know, they have great covers. They have great artwork. It's all like hard bop stuff. And, you know, they often have the same rhythm sections. You know, these guys play on each other's albums. Peck in Time has Hank Mobley, right? I mean, you know, I mean, so it's like they, they trade, they play on each other's dates, and and it's kind of this, you know, great incestuous melange of guys and rhythm sections playing in a very similar mode for a decade or so and just cranking out album after album. But Morgan is really kind of the formulaic, you know, yeah. character in this, you know, because once he hits it, you know, once he hits it with the sidewinder, right? Like he'd already done the cooker, but the sidewinder and it's like, oh, we have a formula, right? <laughs> so, you know, the rump roller, the gigolo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the and, and to some degree, I mean, really blue note had it. Uh, yeah. So I counted just roughly off Wikipedia, maybe like roughly speaking, 25 albums he recorded for blue note. Mm. Did a couple for Savoy Speciality and then VJ, but and after a certain period, it's only on Blue Note. And he has his career where he goes through about 1960, and then he's off the scene for a couple years. And that's due to heroin. And then he comes back, and his first big release after, at least on Blue Note, after the return, is The Sidewinder. And of course, that's a huge hit for Blue Note. And that after that point, they're like, well, guess what? We would like everyone to have a song that sounds like the Sidewinder as a first track on side A of our albums. I mean, that's not entirely true, but man, a lot of, a lot of albums with that kind of boogaloo sound. It basically, if Austin Powers can dance to it, Lee himself, yeah, several of these albums are. I mean, I, the Rump Roller is actually a really good record. I didn't get it for years because it just sounded so blatantly like a, you know, Sidewinder kind of rip off cash in, right? I mean, my God, right. you know. And what does that even mean? You know, I, the Gigolo, right. at least I know what that is, a rump roller. I, you know, but turns out it's a good record. It's, it's, it's got Joe Henderson on it too, blah, blah. We'll, we'll get into the details. But yeah, he is, he's Mr. Blue Note. And, and amazingly, and maybe, well, amazingly, but also kind of, uh, refreshingly, there's only a couple of albums making hay out of that, the fact that his first name is Lee, right? <laughs> um, I, I count, I count delightfully Morgan. Um, and I think leeway, and I think that's it. If there's another They're relatively I'm, restrained. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it could have been I mean, so much think, worse. <laughs> you'd think they'd really go to town, but no, there's just those two. As opposed to and Lee Conitz, like, where it's just, you know, I know can't they stop can't them. stop. Yeah. <laughs> there's at least that someone at blue note was like, we're not going to, we're not going there. We're not going to do that. And I'm, I'm kind of happy that they didn't. So anyway, um, yeah, his stuff on blue note, what consistently like well above average, right? I would say, you know, I'd say so. It, it, it's interesting because he is, um, in some ways, you could argue he's got more personality and maybe slightly better taste than Freddie Hubbard. 
Mm. Uh, he's, I don't know if he's quite the technical monster. It's hard to say. I don't know enough about trumpet playing to know how difficult what he's doing is compared to Freddy. His, we'll talk about it. I mean, his, his curse in a sense is that you don't ever get the sense he, he writes some decent music. And Wayne Shorter has this amazing quotation about it. It's like, I, I should have written it down somewhere, but this is basically like Lee was not a trained composer. It wasn't natural for him, but he'd work hard at it. You know, and Wayne obviously Shorter is one of the best known jazz composers and, you know, uh, was the musical director for Art Blakey and then Miles Davis and wrote every song on multiple albums for Blue Note. So it's just kind of he's the exception. And Lee did it. He struggled, but he was never really a conceptualist. I never get the sense of Lee as somebody with his artistic vision I'm trying to achieve this with this given record. And so, yeah, there's lots of records. He tends to have good taste. He tends to have good musicians with him. He tends to be, most of the time, a very fine player. There are times when he sounds tired or just a bit distracted. We don't, I don't think we chose any of those albums in this case, but there are a couple I've heard. Like Karumba, I just think it's kind of a low energy effort that doesn't do that much for me. I love Hank Mobley's Dippin', but he sounds a bit shaky to me on Dippin'. That may, that may have been the heroin mm-hmm. years, I'm not sure. So, I mean, there are moments where you, you hear him and he's like, yeah. But yeah, he's always like three and a half stars. I don't know what we say. And sometimes better. I, Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, for, I, I, he's solid three and a half stars. And then I think there's some four star albums like we'll talk about. The Sidewinder for me, of course, is one of those. Um, I think Search for the New Land is a cut above. Yeah, a lot of people cite that it's a little more ambitious. Yeah, yeah. so I think that one's um, uh, a step up. And isn't there, we're saying, Live at the Lighthouse has some very fine stuff, even though that's a little later. Yeah, and that's a good, you know, one thing that put this into my mind, even though we're not going to discuss that particular album, is this, he does his session right before his last session, a live album, I think the first official live album he did, Live at the Lighthouse, originally it's a double album with a total of four tracks, and then some time ago, I remember when it happened, I don't remember the date, Blue Note went back and issued a three CD set that had one version of the performance of every tune he did at the Lighthouse. And then, like last year, Blue Note did a, I can't remember if it was 12 or 14 LP set and an 8 CD set of everything they recorded at the Lighthouse, including duplicates. So they've gone back to that well a couple times, and it's right between music on something like The Procrastinator and then what comes out in, in Lee Morgan, the last session. It's... Very modal, but yep. not quite as out as he gets on the last album. And it's very, it's very strong stuff. I mean, I, I didn't go in for the LPs one because they're incredibly expensive and it was mainly scalpers getting them. And then also just, right. I like the session, but you really have to fucking like something to get 12 or more LPs of a live session where the songs are repeated over and over again. I mean, I do it for the plug nickel with right. Miles. That's probably about where that begins and stops with some, some massive set like yeah. that. And, but it's very good. And, um, yeah, that's sort of in the public mind right now because 
Blue Note, of course, put a lot of publicity behind it, so the public mind. Jazz collectors, obviously, no one yeah. else has heard about it. They, they call it yeah. they call it the definitive. Like, at yeah, the, I, I think at this point, I mean, everything, all the announcements are there. I, you know, if it's unless it's Lee passing wind or emptying a spit valve, and it is it, the other thing to say about it is it's a long live document, but it's well recorded. Mm-hmm. Sounds great. You can hear everybody on it, and you know the performance is always at a high level, so it's it's at least pleasurable to experience i don't know if it's always profound but you know it's 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 good music that was well produced and the alternate takes so-called they all sound fine i mean it's not like some of them were screwed up sonically or something there may have been some adjusting early on but it's i've heard a lot rougher live documents so there's that to say for it and I, i i quite enjoy it i you know, it, it's good music. I haven't tried to listen to it straight through. You know, it's, it's a right. hell of a lot. And all the performances are like 15 minutes long. I mean, they're they're very lengthy. And my guess is it might have been a little closer to classic if, say, he'd done, roughly speaking, twice as many songs per set. Maybe a little bit. You know, Benny Maupin, who I love to death, you know, on tenor sax, probably too many choruses on a given song kind of thing mm-hmm. you know he's he's good but anyway so yeah that's that's the major event and kind of lee's discography that happened recently is that everything he did at the lighthouse is available and in the cd is like eight discs for maybe 50 bucks or you know it's it's not crazy right now have you been have you at all and again we'll talk about these four discs in a second have you at all dug into the blue note sort of archival reissues the remastered releases of things like there's been a bunch of these sonic boom tomcat taru infinity because a couple of those have your favorite uh jackie mclean on them and i <laughs> thought that would have been something you'd invest vinyl in i don't know have you li- listened to any of that stuff or gotten no, any of those issues not you know i i can't remember was it the the raj hosh the raj they did as a vinyl release i there was one they did as a tone poet and i listened to it streaming and said you know this just isn't I'm not enough of a Lee completist. I'm going to mess with this. I, I'm not trying to diss it, but just it didn't seem that inspired. So I've not, I'm by no means a completist. I have several of his recordings, but he just did, he I apparently even went on record saying he thought his first round with Blue Note, they over-recorded him. It was mm. just a bit much. And, you know, I've, I've got like City Lights. I think I've got Candy somewhere, this early stuff. But I and I've got leeway somewhere, but I don't have a lot. I used to have a good version of tw- Take Twelve, and I got rid of that. And I regret that to my dying day. It's a a very fine session he did for Jazzland about '62. That may have been the very first thing he did after coming back. Mm. But I don't. Yeah, I don't have all these now. The one release we are doing, The Procrastinator, is a later release. It right. first comes out in '78, and I think that I was very impressed with as strong but yeah mm-hmm. i don't have all those other ones and I, I yeah i mean he's fine with jackie you know i've got a jackie mclean led session with him on it and they, they're certainly compatible yep they're in the same they're in the same bag i was just curious I, i'm also at some point interested in digging into some of the other lesser known blue notes just because he he appears with some people so the first one he's on is with hank mobley's quintet way back in 57 and that would be interesting just to hear the rhythm section on that is killer hank jones doug watkins art taylor he does some sessions with cliff jordan and i think it would be interesting to hear him in that setting you know just to get a to get a sense of him with a, a somewhat 
a slightly a player who fits in that blue note mold, but also has you know later more modal chops and and seems to have yeah. you know more tools in the kit than maybe just a straight up hard bop guy. You know, it'd be interesting to hear him with those folks, and I I, I haven't heard him with them. That so that would be interesting, I think. Rumble, which I found, I have to go. I want to go back to it, but I, I got that as a uh, classic. I think I had known it before. You know, that's with uh, Benny Maupin, yeah, who is very much one of these guys. Because you know, the one thing to say about the Lighthouse is they cover the Sidewinder and I think Speedball, but other than that, all the tunes are by the, the band members, not by right. Lee. And this is also true of his final album that we'll talk about in some depth. He kind of steps back from the composing as he enters the modal era. And lets people take over, but but to me, Benny, especially that young Benny, is not compelling enough on tenor to rivet me. And it just, in general, this is since it's a perfectly fine session. It's by no means, and it came out at the time. It was not held back. I, I just, it just didn't catch fire for me. And so, yeah, you, you hear him there with a little bit more of a new thing guy. Benny's in better form and brings out the bass clarinet, Hallelujah, on the Lighthouse sessions. Right. And of right. course, you hear him with a uh, Mr. Harper on it. Right. You know, right. uh, the final album. Yeah, so. the, the thing that uh, so you hooked me on, hooked me up with Caramba, and again, we're not. Let's talk about the floor. We're going to talk about it like r- real quick. But um, yeah, you hooked me up with Caramba, and what uh, you know, my reaction is similar to yours. Feels like an opportunity missed because again, great rhythm section. Like you know, Reggie Workman is God. You know. Yeah. Oh yeah. And Cedar Walton. You know, on that date, you think that would be like a rhythm section that would really strike sparks and that date feels a little flat. Um, unfortunately, I don't think it's their fault, but, um, but it yeah. happens. I mean, you know, especially when you produce this amount of music, right. there's going to be days where everybody shows up, they're hungover, they're just in a bad mood, broke up the girlfriend, whatever it would be. And I should probably shouldn't say that in Lee's case, Never mind. whatever the situation would be. And it just doesn't, they're professionals. It's good music. There's nothing wrong with it, but it's not one of those days where you kind of are riveted by what happens. As Van Morrison would say, Mama told me there'd be days like this. So, <laughs> All right. Well, I guess I'm assuming for this one we just go chronologically. I Yeah, that's fine. Let's do I that. I mean, there's, there's a bit of a story here. So Yes. first release we're going to talk about in some details the cooker again all these are on blue note this is a 1958 release i believe recorded in 57 the personnel here is slightly unusual in that pepper adams on barry sax is in the front line and you know pepper was kind of active with blue note for a slice there and just 
disappears. And I don't know what the circumstances there were, but, you know, he did a lot of stuff with Donald Byrd and whatever, and he's on a Hank Mobley session, and then he's kind of gone. Bobby Timmons on piano, Paul Chambers bass, Philly Joe Jones drums. And this is the one that, somewhat random, I just dug this up in my collection and didn't even realize I'd bought it. And, mm. well, this is a good example of early Lee. There are certainly many, many albums he recorded in this era. I'm not saying it's the best one, but I feel like both as a soloist, you get the sense of him as he's still kind of forming his identity. And then also just the rhythm section, the approach, the feel of it. It's, you know, because the way his career works is very much pre 60s, post 60s, in 60s, you know, 50s, 60s with this break. And I feel like there's a real shift in the way these, these sessions feel between that break, you know, after that break. I don't think it's a work of genius, but I like it. What, what do you think of the cooker? The the personnel are wonderful, uh, but for me, it's Pepper Adams who makes this date. I mean, he really is the kind of the kind of ringer here who I think makes that 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 takes this date from good to like really fascinating and interesting. I love him on this date, and I think he and Lee are really good foils for each other. think they do a, a, a really smart thing by starting with a night in Tunisia, right? So big expectations, right? You're like, okay, what's going to happen here? And and then they kind of just go sideways, right? In other and words... That, that was Lee's feature with Dizzy Gillespie's big band. Lee came up very, very young. And yes. he was, you know, every night he'd play the, which is fascinating given that Dizzy wrote the song and Obviously recorded some famous versions of it, but Lee was the guy that would solo on that. So that was kind of his party piece. And it's, yeah, yeah, and they, yeah. they take it at a slower tempo, and uh, he doesn't play the big break at all. And uh, Pepper gets a really cool uh, set of choruses on this. It just throws you for a loop. Like, you know it, right? You, as soon as you hear it, you're like, oh, I know this song. Da, 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 da. Yeah. But they don't take it as a fast, at, at as fast a pace. It's a little more chill. It's like, it's like a it's like kind of swing in it you know and then pepper tears it up but not at like you know parker speed he just he plays a really fine solo it's just a terrific take and i think it it's oddball and arresting enough to to like set set the tone for the rest of the album like you're like okay they're gonna do this stuff but they're not gonna do this is gonna be a hard bop date but it's gonna throw you a curve you know so there's some songs you might expect here right just one of those things lover man right but they don't just do them in this straight up uh johnny griffin speedball way you know yeah yeah they kind of throw you curves and i i think a lot of that has to do with pepper adams being present here um and once once he's established as one of the two main voices here, we're in a different space than we might be if a, a tenor or alto was the other lead horn here, right? It's just immediately different. And I, I really feel like, I don't know, I don't quite understand the alchemy, but I feel like Lee and Pepper are really good foils for each other. I, I feel like they, they play well together. Like, there's some chemistry. And I kind of I kind of want more of this. Could they do more of these? 
could they do some, you know, other standards? And like, what would Sidewinder have sounded like with Pepper Adams? Oh my! <laughs> you know, I'm just curious. I, I mean, I like this. I, I maybe at a certain point, a lot of this would get on my nerves, but it's just different enough from the standard Blue Note quintet format that it kind of catches my ears and and throughout kind of holds my attention. And I feel like the slight quirkiness of the front line raises the rhythm section's game. And it's not like they need much encouragement. I mean, Philly Joe and Paul Chambers are, at this point, can read each other's minds, you know. But I just feel like everyone's in good form here, and that the front line has kind of forced everyone to think a little more about music that can be cliched sometimes. And I don't feel like there's any cliches here. I feel like it's engaged and thoughtful and kind of surprising. In all kinds of ways. I love the interplay. I mean, I can't say enough about Night in Tunisia. I love the interplay when Pepper and uh, Lee start trading short, short uh, solos, short choruses. Um, and then they start trading them with Philly Joe. And mm, and it's yeah. just like they're t- they're taking this song apart in a new way. I just I think it's wonderful. I love Heavy Dipper. I love their take on the standards. I just think this is maybe an underrated gem. I think I had it in my mind at three and a half stars, and and I think maybe it's a four star album. I don't know. Well, I they may have reissued this one. I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, there's. I, I will admit that in in the flood of vinyl reissues, I've not focused on Lee. I've certainly gotten a couple of them. It's just that he's not, you know. And again, I like him. It's just, but but I he's not somebody I feel like the urge to be a completist with. And it's interesting, it's an early album. I think the story went that might have been Donald Byrd, might have been somebody else who told Herbie Hancock, okay, for your debut on Blue Note, they're going to want you to do half originals and half covers, fight to get all originals on, which, of course, Hancock was able to do. I mean, he's he's got those chops. And here, this is very much, um, you know, there's a couple standards, just one of those things, Lover Man. There's Night in Tunisia, which is kind of a jazz standard, and then a couple Morgan originals, Heavy Dipper and Numaw. So it's very much in that mold, which I feel like as time progressed, it became less and less usual for Blue Note artists to cover standards. I mean, there might be one on a recording. Often there were none. But but here it, it's, it's, it's almost that little bit more. Again, it feels more 50s to me with the, with the covers of standards, and eventually they kind of either moved away from that or really like when Hank Mobley does it, he really hard boppifies what he's doing. You know, remember by Irving Berlin is like Mobley's Mobleyized it. You know, it it doesn't right. sound anything like you've heard that song be before. It's very much hard bop. So yeah, I, I think the, I like this album a lot. I was glad to find it. I don't know why I didn't remember. I owned it. It's a lot. I, I think what struck me was the novelty of Pepper being there. I think, you can tell that for me, at least Morgan is a little tumbling over himself with ideas. I mean, he just, he's, yeah. he's not really mastered using space yet or his, his, he's got a very vocal expressive sound 
puckish would be a term to use. Maybe. Yeah. I know I overuse it to some degree, but it, it, there's some humor in it. Uh, they're vocalized effects. It, it's a very different kind of mastery than Hubbard does. It, Hubbard just has a whole different bag of tricks. And uh, he tends to pop out ideas and just be sort of intrinsically dramatic when he plays. You know, there, there's a sense of just startling you and sudden phrases popping up. Here he's he's a little overflowing, you know. It's, it's just like, look what I can do. I've, I've got this lick, I've got that lick, and so it, it's 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 a bit much. I think it might have worked a little better if he just let a little more breathing room creep in there. And Pepper, yeah, he's he's great. He does tend to be like a semi truck barreling down the road of jazz, you know. He's like he's got a lot of notes to play. He's gonna come along and do them, and. I like that. I, there's a recently a live album that, that was circulated by the review sources, you know, of him that came out on one of those reissue labels. I don't think it was a reissue. I think it was a recently discovered classic live recording. And I just remember it was like, this is just too much. Pepper. He needs a foil. I think that Pepper Adams by himself, for me, is just a little too much of a good thing. But here with somebody who at least is coming into his puckish vocalized way, it's a great balancing act. And yeah, just overall, I think it's, it's a good spark. I mean, it is very much, you know, you get to the later albums with Higgins, there's just a different rhythmic feel, right? I mean, again, you feel like up in the 60s now, I'm not in the 50s anymore, where this is like state-of-the-art, mid-50s rhythm section, playing very well. So yeah, I, I like it. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know where I'd, whether I'd bump it up to four or not. It's it's close. I just I feel like Pepper is on is on great form here, and I, I like the interplay between him and and Lee. I think Lee has a really good foil here and an unexpected one, and that their the tension between them raises everyone's game. It feels like this is just not another just another blue note date. I feel like it's I feel like it's a a slight cut above. Yeah, and you know it's amazing because it's it's still a quintet. It's just a quintet with a baritone saxophone player. Out yep. of a bebop background instead of a tenor player who's maybe more hard bop. So yeah, it's all it takes to kind of shake things up and then and you get an interesting, memorable record. But again, there are close to a dozen records he made as a leader and others he was on as a, um, a sideman during this period. It's very prolific. And I don't, you know, I thought about there are a couple biographies out there by him. They are expensive and in, in paperback form. You can't get them electronically. I looked at Powell's. They didn't have either. I've not read a whole life story of Lee's, but my general understanding is, is, you know, he comes up as a very young man, makes his mark with Dizzy Gillespie, becomes his band leader, and then around 60 or so, uh, and he's also involved with Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, his drug problems increase to the point where he has to kind of go back home, and, and, and he's strung out, and he's just off the scene for a couple of years. Yeah. And I don't know whether you've got more detail on that. I no, I mean, yeah, it's it's heroin addiction in 61, um, and he's out of commission until December 63, the sidewinder, you know? I mean, what a hell of a comeback. But, yeah, it's two years gone. Yeah, no one knew that it was going to be this massive hit for him, but it came through for him. 
it is a hard bop album, more in the 60s mold. Again, on this particular piece, we've got him obviously on trumpet. He, he will start to add flugelhorn towards the end of his life to his repertoire, but he's still trumpet here. Joe Henderson on tenor, Barry Harris piano, Bob Cranshaw bass, and then Billy Higgins drums. And Billy has got that kind of bounce on the snare that he throws in. Uh, and of course, Sidewinder itself, as I said, is kind of the Austin Powers dance music, right? It's got that kind of 60s vibe to it. And it just becomes a huge hit. And the rest of the record is, is actually quite good, right? It, it's not, <laughs> it's not like it's, it's one good song and then a bunch of filler, but it's more like standard operating early 60s blue note stuff. I mean, it's good, it's, but it's not the commercial juggernaut. How many of, how many of the five songs here? all composed by Morgan, would you say qualify as standards? Obviously the Sidewinder. Totem Pole, would you make that a standard? Well, I I don't know. Have you I don't think I've run across covers of any of the other ones, but Really? Not Gary's notebook, surely. Alright, maybe. Maybe. Yeah. And now you say it and I think maybe so. And also I was wondering about Hocus Pocus, but I wondered if you thought the other tunes maybe deserved. Well, I, I think they're all fine blue note tunes. I mean, this is the thing, is that in a sense, it's, it's there were literally hundreds of often minor key tunes composed by Blue Note's roster, and most of the time they're at least good. They aren't, you know, right. now very few of them are distinctive enough that they wouldn't be kind of interchangeable with a half dozen, dozen other ones. Which again doesn't mean they aren't pleasant, that they don't provide good opportunities for blowing. They're just not kind of, you know, spectacular. And I, I've always mainly thought, I mean, this is an unusual record and that he wrote as much as he did because really Lee was never a guy to just dominate a whole record typically with his compositions. But yeah, let, let me look here. I'm going to see if I can find. Well, I found Gary's got a boner. Uh, hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that, that would be interesting. Uh, let's see here. Can I find? I just wondered. I mean, there's certainly songs that could yeah. be standards. Well, in certainly, sense. yeah. I mean, absolutely. And they're I'll, catchy. Yeah. They got hooks. I mean, to me, it, it, I I got a couple years ago the combo in our jazz band. I said, we need to cover a Tina Brooks song, and, and the director never heard of him. And he's like, he's not so bad. And it's, Tina Brooks is somebody who I feel like is more distinctive, maybe. And, and, of course, no one covers his stuff either. I mean, this is the thing, is that these guys, I think a lot of useful and interesting music was composed during this period, but only a little bit of it tends to be returned to. And, yeah, I agree. I mean, these are these are good tunes. Yeah, I feel like Totem Pole should be or is. It feels like the kind of sinuous uh, little vehicle that Miles, just before the second great quintet, might might pick up and be interested in. Um, I feel like I've heard covers of Gary's Notebook. It's I, I, I can't think of any off the top of my head, but I feel like I've heard covers of it. And the same with Hocus Pocus. Hmm, okay. In any event, if they're not standards, they ought to be. I don't know. Um, anyway... 
Yeah. I mean, what's not to like about this album? Barry Harris is here in great form. You know, this um, this rhythm section maybe isn't like the most famous, you know, like each one of these guys is really good, um, but isn't necessarily sort of thought of as like, you know, top shelf, like the best of the best. Right. Like uh, each of them are very well regarded players. Right. Venerated players. But when you think of this rhythm section, you don't think, oh, man, that's all stars. But they kind of are in this setting. And I think they serve these tunes really, really well. And yeah, again, you know, the, the heart of a blue note data is how good are the the two frontline horns? What's their interactions like? How do, how do they work together? And um, Lee and Joe are kind of perfect for each other here. I mean, this is just a stone cold classic. And the Sidewinder is just like, it's just a great song. It's just flat out yeah. great. Song. <laughs> like amazing. from the first few bars, you like, you can't stop snapping. Like you just, you're all in. It's like, there's a couple of songs like that where you sort of go, yep, I'm there. Like just right away. You know, um, so what works like that for me? You know, um, yeah. there's there's just certain songs that from the opening beats, you're like, OK, where are we going? And the Sidewinder is one of those. And it just it makes good on its promise. It's such a sturdy vehicle for soloing, you know, it, as as so many of these songs are. They're just really sturdy frames uh, for two horns to kind of do what they do. Um, and what's nice is they seem to be listening to each other and interacting with one another. And I, I, I think the, the tunes are really strong. I think these are incredibly strong songs and they ought to be better regarded than they are. Maybe, um, it just feels like they're standards, even if maybe I'm wrong and they're not. Um, yeah, I've been looking on my server. I'm not finding, you know, other tunes with that name, but, but, for sure. I mean, of course, the Sidewinder itself is something that the Blue Note artists return to over and over again. Right. It just it's kind of a one of the biggest best known songs from the from the label, and so you know lots of groups cover it. I, I think Artemis did. I'm trying to think who else. I'm sure it was. Um, it's been deconstructed by a number of other artists from that era. I think probably I Greg Gosby doing it at one point live. So it, it's you know it, it is a kind of a a reference point and people return mm. to that. But yeah, it, it's, it's a good album throughout. I think Joe is a great match. There's very much the sense that, you know, Joe is very much, I think of as a sixties tenor player, you know, it, it in that mode is a little bit more advanced. As I said, uh, surprisingly, the Rump Roller, which I never heard before, I got as a vinyl issue. And it's like, yeah, this is really a pretty good record, too, you know, which brings back Joe. And I think Higgins is certainly a crucial part of this, the, the feel of it and the bounce. And just he really kind of energizes a group. So, yeah, I I think it's, it's, it's a classic. And it's, it's certainly one that if it seems cliched to you or just you've heard too much about it or whatever, it's worth returning to. It's not it's not one of those records that got famous because people aren't very discriminating and it's kind of a disappointment if you love the music you're, you're gonna like it if you like jazz so i mean it's it's not just a record that got lucky or something 
You know, and it's also, um, it's probably, you know, we don't do this enough. There are certain albums that ought to belong to any would-be jazz listener's starter kit. This is a great starter kit album. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, this is an album you'll just immediately sort of connect to. I've never, I I don't know anyone who hears this and goes, ah, what is that? You know? Right. You you hear Sidewinder like, oh, yeah, I'm in. It's a great starter kit uh, it's one of the first CD jazz CDs I ever bought, and it just feels like starter kit jazz. You know, if you're gonna have one Lee Morgan, this is the one to have, obviously, and it's a good one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, 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 the strength of the tunes helps there because they are distinctive. Well, uh, so the next one I picked out, it was a bit of an eccentric choice. You know, every now and then I'll just, I, I've run across, okay, here's a couple Lee Morgan CDs and a cutout bin that I don't happen to have. I'll give them a try. They're five bucks each or whatever. And the procrastinator was one of those. I ended up thinking it's, it's a pretty strong record. And certainly if you look at the personnel, so, uh, this is on Blue Note recorded 1967, not released till 1978. Wayne Shorter on tenor, Bobby Hutcherson on vibes. Herbie Hancock piano, Ron Carter bass, and Billy Higgins drums. So that's how prolific Blue Note was. They hit a label with these guys as the personnel and said, oh, we'll sit on it for a while. You know, (laughs) it's like, man. How much do you have that you can just say, well, we just don't need to release this today? You know? Yeah. Why bother? I think overall it's, it's maybe not as unified an effort as some. You know, the, the, the opening, the title track is a little more ambitious, and then you get tunes that are maybe a little bit more in the older mold. What do you think about procrastination in general on this album? Um, I love, I really love Bobby Hutcherson on this album. Really like his his playing here. I really, I, I like his voice here quite a bit. I guess I wanted to ask you, do you feel like Wayne Shorter is a compatible composer for uh for morgan do you feel like there's two wayne shorter songs here and i know you adore wayne shorter compositions do you feel like those are like good tunes for lee yeah it's hard to say and i don't don't think that any of wayne's outstanding compositions of which there are many happen to be on this record you know that no yeah it's hard i mean obviously they work there's just two songs we should be clear dear sir and rio but yeah go ahead make your point i'm sorry no it's okay i i yeah I, i think that they worked a lot together in Art Blakey, and Benny Golson was with Blakey apparently just pretty much long enough to cut Monin. He was he was a passing star, and so it was Lee, I believe, who said told Blakey, "Well, go get Wayne Wayne Shorter." And so they worked together a lot, and they also recorded together on VJ. I mean, they they just they did a lot of work together. They are different artists, and Wayne's more eccentric a take, not necessarily. Lee's bag, right? I, I never would right. characterize Lee as being Mr. Weird or eccentric. You know, he's just, he's a not, not that strange a dude. So, yeah, I don't know that either one of those, well, Rio, I guess I kind of liked, I, I don't think it was very distinctively shorter, but just it was kind of this bossa ish tune. Right. 
and honestly, I think one of the odder tunes on the album is a title track by Morgan, The Procrastinator. Right. Which I think works, but is, yeah. is, is, is not, is anything with the Sidewinder. They're not opening with a Boogaloo. That may be why the album got shelved. I don't know. So what, mm. what are your thoughts? Do you feel like Wayne is maybe kind of not? Yeah, I feel like, you know, I feel like these are two songs that are, that are Wayne. Dear Sir could be early second quintet. I mean, it really could. Um, and to some degree, I think Rio also, you know, could be compositions that he could have presented Miles with in 65 or 66. And Miles would be like, yeah, let's go. You know, um, they feel very modal to me. And I don't feel like that's Morgan's bag. I don't feel like that's his strong suit. I don't think he's incapable of playing this kind of music. I just don't think that's his strength. Right. A, a guy who, who, who writes songs like the rump roller and the procrastinator and the sidewinder and party time <laughs> and stop yeah. start. That guy is kind of like the peppy hard bop hipster, you know, and to get him into these sort of different bags, a sort of sort of weird kind of funky fading, you know, kind of modal chords. It feels it's not that he can't play them. It just it it feels it, it doesn't feel organic or something to me. I, I, so I don't. I don't like him as much on those songs. He was not as much of an avant-garde explorer as Hubbard. Hubbard right. seemed to get the first call on the out stuff, even though he wasn't a natural out player. He is, Lee Morgan appears on Greg and Moncure the Third's Evolution, yes. which we talked about on our Jackie Attack special back on episode 62, which I think is the greatest of, of the Jackie McLean, Greg and Moncure sextet out albums. You know, they did three together and, Evolution, which uh, had more Greg in writing, is I think the strongest of those. And so Lee's on that. You know, he's every now and then he'll, he'll poke his toe into the more outwaters. But yeah, Freddie seemed to be the one that got the call for things like Ascension or you know yeah. uh, uh, free jazz or whatever. It was not Lee. And you're right. I mean, Lee is you know it's weird. He's so young. I mean, he dies at 33. Right. But by the time the Motor Revolution comes, you know, he's kind of a veteran. He yeah. was literally playing in a big band when he came up and comes out of bebop and then goes into hard bop. So he'd already kind of gone through two major musical styles before Modal comes along. Yeah, it's um Yeah, I just it's not that he can't play it and it's not that I dislike these songs with him on them, but it it somehow feels a little less organic. It feels a little less you know, when you said Hubbard, I was like, "Oh yeah, I would rather hear Hubbard on those songs than than Lee." And you know, what's kind of funny is with um Hutcherson here, what's kind of striking is you're like, "Hutcherson can do this stuff standing on his head, right? He could do the hard bop, but he really slots in well on those songs." And so for me, he's kind of the star of this album because I think he's great on The Procrastinator. And then on Dear Sir and Rio, I'm like, yeah, Wayne, get it. You know, it's uh, not Wayne, Bobby, you know, Bobby. Oh, yeah, Bobby. Yeah, yeah oh, like, for oh, sure. Yeah, he's, you know, this is 
he can do this. You know, this is this is a really congenial environment for for Hutcherson. And maybe it's he's like a like a fish in water. And, you know, Lee feels a little like, you know, he's putting his toes in and he's kind of wading out, you know, but he's he's not quite swimming yet. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't dislike this, but it doesn't it doesn't feel like Lee is in his element, I guess. Um, yeah. Um, and they're fine compositions. I like Dear Sir. I think it's a terrific song. I just don't think Morgan is great on it. Doesn't necessarily think, thrive, yeah. Yeah, yeah I feel sure. like he's adequate. He's adequate on it, but I don't think he's great. And when you said Hubbard, I immediately thought, oh, yeah, he would have been great on that song. Yeah, you know, there are times where Lee is, is just professional. You know, he, he gets the job done. Yeah. And it, it's just it's going to happen with, with the amount he, of music he, he made uh, that it all can't be as strong as, as the very best examples. But I, for me, I think the fact I, I felt it was probably important to get something with shorter on it because of the relationship. And we didn't do this time. You know, we could have thrown in an art Blakey. I mean, he does a lot with Blakey. Yeah. And we didn't do any really early stuff on VJ. I've always felt like the VJ stuff is fine, interesting, but, you know, certainly true of Wayne's as well. Just kind of, okay, good to know about, but not, not really exciting, not really the meat of the, of, of the career. But, um, it was important to get something with him on there. And of course, I think Bobby's great on this record and it just kind of gives you a sense of him. If nothing else, it's a little bit more sprawling. He's trying out different modes. Maybe everything doesn't quite, and we're really going to get there next time, but the following record, it, it, it's a little more ambitious, a little bit less one thing. And that's a strength and a weakness. But, but for me of, again, I don't know. Have I heard even a third of his records? I, right. Maybe I, I've I've probably heard at least a third of his leadership dates, but maybe not a lot more than that. This is one that kind of I, I liked aspects of pretty well. So uh, and certainly as a later find, I think it's it's reasonably strong. You know, because sometimes those ones they're often fine, but and occasionally they're really good. But it, the ones that were in the uh, archives and unreleased for a while sometimes it's because you know they were fine, but they weren't as good as. What else was coming out of that time or that same artist's other albums that, you know, they thought were a bit stronger. In this case, my guess is a little too progressive and no absolute friggin' home run. And so Blue Nuts like, look, we got so much stuff here. We're just going to, we'll just wait. So the last album, which is confusingly was originally called just Lee Morgan picture of him kind of, uh, he's amazingly skinny dude yeah. kind of sitting there with his trumpet looking very badass and sharp, sometimes referred to as a last session. And it is, it's his last session on blue note, a double LP from uh, 19. And interestingly, I, I, I guess there were no alternate takes. You'd think with this sprawling and ambitious a project in a group, there might have been other material there, but to my knowledge, it's never come forth. I don't know. This is, I feel like kind of an ignored album in his discography, and I understand that, but I think it's a shame in certain ways. This is where, after the live Lighthouse sessions, which were very much, Lee is going to try modal music out. I mean, he, he commits to that form. I don't know if he thrives in it, but 
that's what they're doing. They're not. They're no longer playing hard bop for the most part. The odd sidewinder cover aside. This is a step further into the waters of modalism and to some degree even freedom. It's got Billy Harper on tenor saxophone, and he also is a uh, contributes two of the songs, which given that there's only like five, is pretty major. Right. You know, they're, mostly these are one one side of album songs. Bobby Humphrey is there on flute. Yep. Uh, Graken Moncure the third, and Graken, we recently lost him. We'll see if we do a show devote. He's not really a prolific composer, or rather uh, album leader, but uh, he passed away very recently, and he's he's here on trombone. Uh, Harold Mayburn's on piano and electric piano. Jamie Merritt on electric bass. Reggie Workman on bass and percussion, so two basses at times. Freddie Waits on drums and recorder, because it was the 70s. So a sprawling group, sprawling songs, and um, something I think, no, I mean, you know, this one you listen to and it's like, where have, what happened? You know, it's, it ain't the Sidewinder. It ain't even the Procrastinator. This is very different. Uh, I don't know. I, people have mixed feelings about this. What do you think about the sprawling double album, Lee Morgan or The Last Session? I really like this. I was kind of surprised by it uh, in the sense that given what we just said, what I just said about the not sort of fitting modal, right? Then we get this album and uh, it's it's not even trying to, to be bebop at all, right? This is just sprawling energy music. And it has like three of at least my favorite people on it, um, encore on trombone. And I, you know, I'm just all in on everything Billy Harper. I love his tone. Yeah, yeah. I'm just, I can't get enough of that shit. And Reggie Workman, kids at home, get the big boy headphones and turn them up. Man, Reggie is working. He's, he's earning his name. So, you know, from the first opening chords of this, I'm like, yes, this is I'm in a happy place. And, and Billy goes out for a long ride on 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 his solo. He goes out for a while. But I feel like Lee Morgan kind of feels more like he's up to speed here. He, he fits in a little better. There's it for me anyway. It seems like he's kind of got this now, or he's more at home here. He's more committed to and comfortable in this milieu than uh, I felt he was on the procrastinator. Yeah, I, I I I like this a lot, and it was a big surprise to me. I was kind of like, hmm, what is Lee gonna do here? And I was like, golly, he's he's gonna be a team player. He's gonna join in. He's he's gonna kind of do the thing. And this made me wonder, you know, what if he lived another five years? What oh, if he lived another ten years? You know, I guess we haven't done the the, the 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 best known thing about Lee Morgan, unfortunately, is that oh, yeah. he is right. shot to death by his common law wife at the club Slugs in 1972, I believe. Yeah, and uh, dies at age 33. So yeah, I, I, he definitely is moving places, and 
experimenting, and we're not sure. He also got involved politically with protesting the lack of representation of jazz musicians on blacks on television, and they right. you know would interrupt some talk shows to talk about this issue. And so, I mean, you know, he was very much an artist in in progress, a developing guy, still very young. You know, I mean, thirty three. This was the third mode he got into. You know, I mean, he he experienced a lot, but. Yeah, it's it's heartbreaking to think about what he might have done. Yeah, the uh, the idiots on all music. I don't often think they're idiots, but I think they're idiots this time. They they say that this is a step toward jazz fusion. I, I I think that's just wrong. I don't think this has anything to do with fusion. I don't think I think fusion would have been a a, a fourth move for Lee. And right, I yeah. think he's, you know I don't he, I don't think he's ready for fusion. But I think you know he's he's heard Billy Harper and he's like I see the future and and I can go there. You know I can do this. And he just he feels like a team player with these other players who I think are very comfortable in this mode. Um, they they all seem to be Moncour is killing it on this album, and uh, he just fits in. I I think he I think he belongs here. I think Morgan belongs in this setting. It's so it's like you know he's he's kind of got to a new place, and it's a shame this is the last place he got to because. I could listen to like four or five more albums of this, you know, and development over time. That would have been cool. I would have liked to hear like Lee Morgan and Billy Harper in 1976. That would yeah. be interesting to me. Yeah, you know? and really, you know, by the lighthouse, I think that, you know, with, with a different group, he sounds to me pretty confident. And that is it, it's more purely modal where this, as I said, towards the end, it gets a little out. But yeah. um Mostly modal and, and, and just the nature is not that Benny Maupin won't squawk, not that he, but, but, but Harper is a intrinsically more intensive player. His, his yep. temperature is just higher. Yeah. But in both cases, I think, yeah, Morgan is by that point, by 71 and 72. Yeah. He's, I agree. Absolutely. He's confident in this idiom. I mean, in certain ways, just technically speaking, what modal jazz asked you to do is to be creative among both freedom and constraint, I mean, you, you, you have very little harmonic material you have to worry about. So you're tasked, in a sense, with coming up with stuff to play over a limited amount. The chords aren't feeding you ideas. It, it, there are only right. two chords or whatever. So, you know, you you have to come up with this. And sometimes part of the answer to that is more energy. And certainly on this, people point out, I mean, this is not the Lee Morgan show with a backdrop. He is part of a group. And... These guys are all contributing, and they all have their moments to step forward and shine. I mean, maybe not Bobby Humphrey. Someone said, she's like a less interesting Hubert Laws. I'm like, that's a bit harsh to Hubert Laws. She's also like, oh, yeah, you know, no, yeah. Hubert Laws, who doesn't play as good. I mean, she just doesn't have a third yeah. of his technical uh, ability on the, on the instrument. I don't hate Bobby Humphreys or something, but I mean, she's just not a major player on the horn the way Hubert Laws is. So, I mean, she's there. She's a color and she, I think, solos a little bit, but it's, you know, Graken's soloing, um, 
Harper is certainly, you know, if you get Billy Harper, he's going to play. You know, it's not like, yeah, we- I'll skip this one. It's like Billy does not skip this one. So nope. it, it, it's a, it's an intense record. And I, I find it, I mean, I was a little surprised because my memory of it had been, you know, they do croquet ballet, which is one of Billy's standards that will come up again and again. I mean, Billy's not prolific, but he's, he's, he's consistent and he's loyal to his tune. So they'll, they'll reappear and reappear. And it's a great tune. I mean, I love croquet ballet. And my memory was kind of clouded by that. And I remember, oh, yeah, about song four, shit gets weird. You know, I mean, it's it's not purely modal anymore. It's just kind of odd. And then it, it ends on a kind of a modal tune. So it, it does this record in terms of its textures and the people involved. It's just more ambitious and kind of, you know, in a way, it's nothing like Bitches Brew, but that idea of a lot of players in a room and there's a certain amount of just ongoing interaction rather than just purely I'm soloing and there's kind of a density and murk to it. There's a little similarity there, but you're absolutely right. I and mean, there's no sense of here comes electric guitars coming in or we're going to do some kind of tight ass tune in 15.3. It's, 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 it's not fusion per se. It is maybe a little elements of world music and certainly it, it's adding elements from free jazz, et cetera, into the mix, but not as we think of fusion uh, as a commercial force. And I don't think Lee, I mean, he's got electric bass here, electric piano, but I think in general he was not, he didn't like the idea of electrifying jazz entirely, you know, bringing in guitars or certainly we never hear him. He's a wah-wah pedal or something. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, 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 I like this a lot. I, like I said, I'm very happy with this and it was a, quite a surprise and it was a good surprise. I was like, yep, this makes me very, very pleased. So yeah. And it doesn't, you know, it, it's not, I, it is not heavily featured in the catalog. And I, I do think obviously everyone would like to run blue note to their own specifications. If I took over Don was body, I get a haircut and then I probably would choose some different ish albums to reissue. And this would be high on the list. I mean, this seems yeah. like this is a tone poet kind of thing, or even a classic. I mean, this is something that more so than many of, you know, Donald bird or Bobby Humphreys, God bless him. I'm cl- I know they're important to samplers, but, but in terms of musical content, this seems to me a lot more important and challenging and more cornerstone to Blue Note's legacy than some of the things that have been coming out. So I, I kind of wish they take a look at it. I mean, I think it, it would benefit from some TLC and, and getting back out there and in circulation. Well, anything more to say about Mr. Morgan? Nope, just that this was fun, and uh, I, I I don't think there's any I haven't heard any bad Morgan, um, yeah. and this was just such a welcome surprise. I really, you know, I, I I still haven't heard any Billy Harper that I don't just immediately fall in love with. He just for some reason is a voice I connect to, but um, you know I could have heard this and thought, oh gosh, Morgan should not have been on this date. But uh, no, I like him here. I think he fits in well. I think you know this is a, the, the, a promise of something 
to come that we never find that we never get to to yeah. hear. We don't we yeah. don't get to have this promise made good on, unfortunately. But it's such a nice, fascinating turn at the end of his career. I really would have liked to have known what would come next. If you know this is the future, I would be really interested to see where it had gone from here. It's too bad. Yeah, and you know, you think of another artist who was by no means just a blue note artist, but like a Dexter Gordon, who likely had a lot of personal charisma and likely had a very distinctive way of playing his horn, a very recognizable way, a way that people gravitated to and spoke to them directly. And he definitely does, you know, Dexter gets touched a little bit by train, and he does change up a bit what he does, but his transformation over a longer career and even more prolific. I think is is in a much narrower band. I mean, you know, he does work with Woody Shaw. I guess a little modal there, but I feel like his his journey is maybe in some ways shorter aesthetically, whereas Lee, who had this very truncated life, really is is moving further and trying things out. Now he may well have gone back, you know, he, like Jackie McLean, you know, who got out and then went back in. You know, I don't know if Lee would have stayed doing this, but it'd be fascinating to have found out. So it's it's a shame. Well, do you have any pop matters on your mind? Uh, blah, blah, blah. Let's see. Probably not, because I've been, as you know, otherwise occupied. Um, what has come across the transom that I've listened to recently? Anything that I would like to you know, share with the class? Uh, I finally, uh, for the first time, listened to, and you probably have strong opinions about this. Um, there were two things that were new uh, in the last two weeks. Um, uh, one I'd heard before and one I'd never heard before. So um, uh, put into the rotation Michael Jackson's Thriller. And uh, hadn't heard it in a long time. And I have to say, when you do listen to Michael Jackson's Thriller, it's so hard to separate what we know and and all of the other stuff around it and just to hear it as music again and uh try as i might i couldn't quite do it like there was such hype around that album when it came out in 83 and there was so much (laughs) so much noise and you know he mtv blew him up bigger than god and it's hard now to just I, i kept trying and it's still in the rotation i listen to some of the songs from it now and again but it's it's hard to to get back to just the sound of that and try and ask myself, okay, what are he and Quincy Jones doing here? You know, what is what is you know if I could forget everything that happened after 1983 and just hear the song, you know, and just right. hear the words. And in a way, to hear them. And I talked about this when I dubbed my sister's copy of Thriller. You know that people our age were just fucking immersed. In a yes. bath. I mean, we were juniors when it came out in high school. Yes. And at that time, radio had a different role than it does now. And I mean, you just, it was inescapable. You heard these songs hundreds of times. MTV was important yeah. back then, like vastly important. And he was pretty much the most important, most influential yes. artist on MTV. So it's just, he, the other yeah, thing is yeah. we've heard them hundreds of times. So it's, it's, it's hard to kind of get that distance. And I, you know, at the time, 
I thought this guy is kind of weird. He seems to be presenting himself in a way that's self-contradictory. I'm this badass sex machine, but he didn't seem like a badass sex machine. He seemed weird. And I, you know, not to be just uh, different, unusual, strangely asexual, strange, you know. And of course, we didn't know what was going on. We still don't know absolutely exactly what was going, but seemingly bad things were going on. And, and so, there was always that sense that he was just kind of alien. So yeah, it's very difficult. I mean, it's obviously a, a masterpiece of mainstream production. Obviously, he's hugely talented, and he wanted it bad. I mean, it was what little I've read makes clear he wanted to be a motherfucking superstar, and he was willing to like nearly kill himself to do it. He just every detail, every you know, he was this was not a Svengali turning him into something. This was him blood, sweat, and tearing it to the top. And then not dealing very well with the fact that when you're that big a hit, you just can't stay that way, that the album after Thriller is never going to be Thriller 2. You know, he had incredible sales after that, but he always felt like he was trying to force down your throat, I'm the king of pop, you have to buy this record, it is the most important record ever made. I'm like, dude, I don't know, maybe not. Anyway, sorry to rant there, I no, that's all right. I, I remember seeing, uh, I can't remember where I saw it. I saw a little bit of a documentary on, maybe I was, uh, fell down a rabbit hole on the internet once about, you know, um, Quincy Jones got in a lot of hired guns, a higher, oh, yeah. a lot of hired rock guns to, you know, play stuff. And, you know, the, the, the iconic guitar solos on Beat It and Thriller. Are, you know, you know, people like Eddie Van Halen sort of being called into the studio and stuff. Um, and, and, and one of these videos I saw, one of the licks, maybe on Beat It, is actually a guitar player. And I don't remember who it was. It's not Eddie Van Halen. Um, I remember. Okay. Well, Eddie definitely does a solo, I think, on Beat It, but, but anyway. No, I think it's Thriller. He does the, the right, famous. Maybe I, I just, he has a famous, famous solo. Yeah. Uh, one of the guitar players that basically that they were interviewing said, it's my guitar there, but Quincy Jones sampled it in in reverse. So, uh. like, what you know, when I play it or when I played it live, I had to learn to play my original solo like backwards because that's how they eventually cut it into the song or something. Yeah. Uh, it really is kind of like this, you know, I remember hearing that and, and, and Quincy Jones's efforts, you know, to, to stitch all of these elements together. The whole album is wildly overproduced. And it's just impossible not to hear those songs and not think of all the other stuff. And also it's impossible to hear the songs and not think of the videos and not think of the Weird Al Yankovic parody videos, you know, <laughs> when, when, yeah, when yeah. I'm listening to beat it, I just keep seeing Weird Al Yankovic singing, eat it. I don't, remember, I don't know if you remember, but in Weird Al Yankovic's parody video, he's Michael and people forget this, but Weird Al could parody Michael Jackson's physical movements. Like he learned to dance like Michael, but he did it in a fat suit. <laughs> and so his version of Beat It is called Eat It, and and he does a lot of the dance bits, but with this, he's wearing a giant fat suit, you know. And I just I can't hear that song and not hear Weird Al Yankovic <laughs> singing Eat It, Eat It. You know? Oh, I know, yeah, no, it's it's, it's, just, it's I can't go back somehow. I can't get back to eighty three or eighty two and not know everything I know. And I kind of wish I could. Yeah. Um, when you hear This Girl is Mine with Paul McCartney now, it's like, uh... 
I'm uncomfortable. I'm not yeah. sure why. <laughs> I was uncomfortable in '83. I, I gotta say, I gotta tell you that there was it was anyway. I, I just yeah, not it was every something for everyone, nothing for anyone in particular that that was. I, I guess it didn't matter to a lot. I shouldn't say that a lot of people just worship Michael Jackson. Their lives are built around him, but as a music lover, it was never going to be central to my life. And then coming back to it, I mean, I'm amazed by the craftsmanship. Yeah. And, but, but, you know, some of the lyrics just make no fucking sense. And it is, it, it is a message from an alien, somebody whose life experience and values and perspective are so wildly different from white middle class, ordinary dull me that I just, I can't connect. You know, I mean, I just, I don't, we're from different planets, you know, and so, yeah, the Michael Jackson world is just so different from my very boring, dull mainstream world that it just doesn't, I just can't, you know. It's just not my thing. Yeah. So that's one of the two things. And I, I threw that out there because of one of the things you're going to mention. And then um, the other is, as you know, I, I kind of loves me some national, the national. But I've never uh, I had never heard their uh, I think it's their first major album or their first major first on a major label or whatever. Their album, Sad Songs for Dirty Lovers. Are you familiar no, with that? I, one? I have not gone that back that far. No. So that's back from 2003, I think. And it might be, I mean, there may be like a minor label intro, but I think that's their first, I'm checking now, I think that's their first release. Yeah, there, there's something called The National in 2001, but I don't think that was, I think that's on some other lesser label. Yeah, something called Brassland. And I think by the time they did Sad Songs for Dirty Lovers, they're already over on... No, they're still on Brassland. All right, so whatever. And I just never heard it. And I've been doing some reading recently about them, and they've done some interesting things that have flown under the radar in recent years that I'm interested to kind of reconnect with them, because for a while there, they were the soundtrack to my life, and I just was all in on three or four of their albums. But I just hadn't heard this one, so I listened to it, and it's pretty good. It's uh, it's back when um, it's back when the lead singer was uh, occasionally screamy and urgent. Um, Matt Berninger, I don't know if that's how you say Matt Berninger's name. Berninger, Berninger, Berninger. Oh, don't know. Yeah. Anyway, Matt, he was a little more urgent and screamy from time to time back then. And uh, yeah, I, I'm uh, I like this, but not as much as I like everything from like Boxer on, like Boxer, High Violet, and Trouble Will Find Me are like soundtrack albums for my life in some important ways. Um, so Sad Songs is not there yet, but who knows? Maybe it will be someday. Uh, anyway, that's that's those are the things that have been in my music uh, okay. catalog. Yeah, how about you? Some velvet morning when I'm straight I'm gonna open up your gate And maybe tell you about Phaedra And how she gave me life And how she made Well, uh, not too much to report. When we were in Portland, uh, the last day we were there was Sunday, and we found out that Weird Al was going to give a concert that day. 
And Joyce is like, well, let's go see him if we can. And I thought, well, you know, I drag her to all this classical music and all this jazz, so I should try to do it. She thought the seats would be 40, but by that point, because it was like a day or two before, we were down to like $100 seats. And she just could not swallow the thought of spending 200 bucks uh, sitting separate from one another to listen to Weird Al. So <laughs> we didn't do it. We did see the Weird Al tour bus as we were out walking around. I think we ended up going to see everything everywhere all at once. Uh, in, in the movie theater instead, and it turned out to be pretty close to where the thing was. So we didn't get to see Weird Al. We came close. I was willing to do it. I certainly read a long profile of his, I believe, in the New Yorker, and they talked about, which I think makes sense, how intensely serious he is about what he does, how craftsmanlike, how hard he works at his lyrics, you know, and obviously how hard he worked at learning to dance Michael Jackson moves in a fat suit. I mean, this guy works you, hard at what he does. You have to watch that video sometime. It's it's brilliant. It's such a good parody video. Oh, I'm sure I have. I, I've certainly seen Eat It, but it's been years, right? And that was, I think, Brian finding out, oh, there's this song based on Eat It called Beat It? Because, I mean, you know, he heard Weird Al and had never heard the, the subject <laughs> of the parody. You know, he grew up, you know, born in 1999. So, yeah, that was kind of funny. We're like, yeah, we've heard of Weird Al. Yeah, he was around when we were kids, too. Yeah, he just keeps doing it. We don't know why. Uh, oh, money, maybe. And so the only other thing I got into, and I, I've got a couple things queued up for next time, but I'm, I'm not through them yet, was uh, you did share with me very kindly uh, my birthday gift to you, Nancy Sinatra, Start Walking, this collection. Mm-hmm. Uh, which probably saved me from buying it on vinyl, so you staved <laughs> off a divorce there. 23 tracks, roughly a third with Lee Hazelwood, who, you know, I I knew that she did duets. I'd heard they inspired like Bell and Sebastian, but I don't think I'd ever heard any of these songs. Oh, had, yeah. Had you heard them on the radio as a kid or I just No, but when I listened to that album, like Lee Hazelwood's off key baritone is an earworm of a voice. Like he will burrow into your soul deeply. Yeah, I mean he's he's a very distinctive, gravelly voiced, much older man. Most of his songs with Nancy seem to be some variation on he's gonna bonker. Uh, which is interesting given that Frank, the Nancy Sinatra's famous father, hooked them up, but you know, whatever, it's all all the service of art. I, you know, at the end of it, they're really interesting. And I, I will say one striking thing is all these songs are well produced. I mean, they aren't, yep. they aren't junk. They're very carefully put together. Often there's only a couple instruments. They sound great. They're thoughtful. There is, I mean, he's got a couple crotchets, you know, the, the hippity, the, what I'm trying to say, the sort of cowboyish bass yeah. line. I mean, he just, he, he returns to that, you know, and very much, some mythic encounter of man and woman, you know, they're, they're, the gender politics of some of the songs are a little suspect, but they're fascinating curios. I mean, you know, some Velvet Morning is like, what the fuck is that? You know, yeah. um, just very odd where he's alternating between 4-4 four, four, and then she sings in 3-4. I think it's clear that, you know, sometimes Nancy does a little girl voice and sometimes she's in, pretending to be a goddess in that song and sometimes she's... The woman who's seen it all. So, I mean, she does characters. And I guess, what would you say, a pretty decent voice? I mean, it's probably a little better than I realized it was. I mean, it's not like A-list amazing. She's no Adele, but what do you think of her as a singer? She's all right. Uh, for me, Hazelwood is the, the earworm. I mean, he's just, he's so distinctive. And yeah, yeah. that sort of, he can't sing in key. Like, he just can't. But um, it's like it's like Sam Elliott decided to sing a pop song, you know, it's like, you know, it's got that gravelly, uh, you know, and, and, um, 
apparently like on the liner notes for that she was really hurt when he moved with his wife i think to sweden or norway or something and she was like i thought we had something not like romantically she was like i thought we had like they did a lot of similar songs they kind of hit a groove you know and he just left like yeah. suddenly he was gone and she was like what the fuck dude like we were we were like having some hits you know how'd you why'd you go away she never he never explained it like he never called her up and said all right i'm moving to sweden it was just like here today then he's gone and she was really upset about that because she i think rightly recognized that he was the heart of whatever success they had and she never enjoyed anything like the pop success she had with him thereafter and i think i told you in the liner notes they tell the anecdote about frank sinatra when they brought the songs to her to hear Frank Sinatra sat in a nearby room. He wasn't in on the meeting, but he could, he, he said he had something to do or something, but he could hear the songs. And he supposedly, when he heard the chords to these boots are made for walking, he like told Nancy, that's the hit. That's the single. Ah, you know, he was just fucking right. You know, it's like he heard that and he's like, that's the one. That's the song. Yeah, I read a review that claimed that she told Hazelwood, look, if you sing this song, it just sounds brutal. But if I sing it, it sounds liberating. And then she pushed to have it made the A side of the single. And obviously that was her best. I mean, probably every listener has heard these boots are made for walking. Right. And it is, I mean, I remember listening to that, and of course it was the most familiar to me, but like that was the one that was running through my head again and again and again. There's a, a number of interesting songs. I mean, I'm fascinated by California, which is very clearly a ripoff of the Mamas and Papas. Yep. God, I can't think of it now. All the leaves are brown. All the leaves are brown. Yeah, whatever the California Dreamin'. California. And so Dreamin', this is the yeah. answer song. It's got some of the same harmony, some of the same chord yes. changes. But she says California. It's just a weird way of saying it, and that's kind of got a little verbal hook. And it, you know, it, it's, it's it's an answer song. I mean, is it profound? It, she's kind of, and of course, she also like appeared on one of her albums in a bikini. She's a very beautiful woman. So you know, is it? It's not quite. I think the case of somebody who's just the puppet of Svengali, who's just literally famous name, great looking, has nothing to do with music. We're just sticking her on the cover. I mean, it's more than that. She seems to have had aesthetic opinions, but she's not a songwriter. She's not a brilliant singer. And so you're kind of left in this middle ground. I mean, she's, you know, it's certainly interesting. I think the songs are, I just never knew about them other than third hand. And to finally hear them, is like, well, I don't know if these are all works of genius, but they're certainly fascinating. I'd prefer never to hear coal mining disaster again, but I'm sure I will, you know, where she's like the little girl and then the wife. And he's like, a hundred tons of coal squished me dead. And that's where I feel like Lee just can't quite bring it off. It just sounds campy, you know, kind of stupid. But, but, you know, that's like a six minute epic they threw in there. Just bizarre story songs. But, you know, some of the other ones are, are pretty good. I like them. You know, it's, they're very, very 60s. I mean, the sound of them is that artsy pop of the 60s, not the stuff that Rolling Stone cared about, but not just pap, kind of ambitious pop music like MacArthur Park or Wichita Lineman by, I can't think of the songwriter's name, you know, the kind of, or Burke Bacharach for that matter, you know, the, the guys that were doing interesting work, but were not rockers, were not in rock bands, you know, were not authentic in that sense, were not blues-based, did not interest to the Rolling Stone crowd, but weren't just cranking out Pap or Pablum. 
and she's right in there. You know that this music is right there. But it is it's it's worth listening. I mean, it's certainly, like I said, beautifully done. And you know they're they are willing to take risks with the way they they arrange things. I mean, they're not it's not like cookie cutter uh, backing backdrops. It's like two or three instruments. Um, at least one song there's like a zither or something playing this chord over and over again till I want to break it. But it's a it's it's a choice, you know. It's not just generic. So anyway, thank you for sharing that. I I enjoyed it. I'll probably return to it once or twice. But so you you probably don't want to know this then. But um, there's been a 2022 reissue of they did an LP in '68. Um, some of which some of the song I don't think actually I don't think any of those songs are on this album the one that I shared with you they did an album in 68 called Nancy and Lee which has had a reissue um, I want to say by no not Rhino uh, I think it's Light in the Attic I think they have apparently been doing Lee Hazelwood stuff they did this compilation and they're doing some Nancy and Lee stuff so they're they're back in this horse yeah and Pitchfork is all in on it. They think it's an, a neglected classic. Um, so at some point, I'll probably find that. And if I do, I'll share it with you. Awesome, um, yeah. yeah, I'm, not, I'm not, not opposed to it. But yeah, I have not gone out and got this on, on vinyl or something. And I don't know that I'd pick I mean, I think I'm, all these are also available as compact disc. And, you know, you don't have to get the weird colored vinyl or whatever. But yeah, I... It just again, it's a corner that I think, as a kid who was a little too young to have lived through the period, I was, you know, four when the '60s ended, and learning about it retroactively through places like the Rolling Stone or whatever. You just don't. This just wasn't considered worthy of coverage, you know. Just Scott Walker for you know, just, they just right. You know. So anyway, yeah, it's it's they're an interesting couple, you know. They they sure <laughs> put together some weird art pop. In the '60s, and it was it was cool to at least I feel like it's just a gap that I really knew nothing about, so it was kind of cool to hear them. But more importantly, a gap that you didn't need to hear anything about. <laughs> I it, listen, I like it better than a lot of stuff I've heard. I, I just don't mm-hmm. know that I'm you know it, it's it's and I just you know ultimately now of course the story is neglected feminist pioneer. And right. Like, I get it. I don't know that you're going to convince me that Nancy Sinatra is a genius, but she's also not a write-off. She's somewhere in, the, in that weird, awkward middle. Yes. And that concludes Jazz Bastard Podcast 246. Where can you download us? Where can't you download us? You can try www.jazzbastard.com, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Apple Podcasts, or should you desire, you can stream us at All About Jazz. Drop me a line at All About Jazz if you like. Look me up on Facebook, or email me at pat at jazzbaster.com. Tune in next time as we discuss two brand spanking new 2022 releases by artists as diverse as Harish Raghavan, Joy Lapps, Brian Landris, and Billy Drummond. Until next time, take care.